The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. My name is Henry Rollins. Henry, I think I know you. Oh, I see. You're a character now. I, well, I just do whatever I feel. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> Woo! Shut up. This is Deep Tracks, the show where I give you the entire history of rock music through podcast-sized chunks every week. I am your outstanding host, Doug. That's not a hashtag. That's a sharp McCullough. I want you to imagine something. Imagine you're a struggling black musician in the 1930s in the American Deep South. It's late at night. You're traveling by foot down an old, dusty country road. You've got a few personal items and a knapsack over your shoulder, and in the other hand, you're carrying a guitar your most prized possession. You eventually come to an intersection, and it's there at the crossroads that you stop and set your things down for a moment to rest and try to get your bearings. It's a clear night with a full moon, but there's no other light. While you're determining which direction you're going to go next, you notice some movement down the road. It's an indiscernible shadow at first, but eventually it materializes into a shadowy figure walking towards you. And yes, that sentence said shadow twice. You fumble around in your knapsack for your knife, unsure whether the stranger will be friend or foe. Eventually he comes to stand before you. He has on a black overcoat with a black broad-brim hat. His face is shadowed so that you can't see it. There's a lot of shadows in this story. He speaks, and you're transfixed by his voice. There's something strange about this stranger. He says, Yo, kid, sell me your soul and I'll make you the greatest guitarist of all time. And you say, okay. Robert Johnson was one of the most talented blues guitarists that ever lived. It was said of him that the way he became such a phenomenal guitarist was from an encounter with the devil at a crossroads where he sold his soul in exchange for some killer guitar chops. Um, this, this Faustian mythology has been ascribed to more than one blues musician actually and has been retold and explored in a thousand different ways not the least of which was in the coen brothers movie oh brother where art thou say i haven't seen a house out here for miles what are you doing out in the middle of nowhere well i had to be at that there crossroads last midnight sell my soul to the devil what did the devil give you for your soul tommy well they taught me to play this here guitar real good oh son for that, you traded your everlasting soul? Well, I wouldn't use me. And even on Saturday Night Live, in which Garth Brooks sells his soul to a devil played by Will Ferrell in exchange for a hit song, only to realize that the devil really sucks at coming up with hit songs. Now then, forsaken soul, open thine ears and slake thy thirst on the music that can force kings to their knees yeah. and oceans to boil. Behold! The song that'll take you to the top of the charts! All right. There's a guy named Fred, and he's got a pair of slacks. Ooh, Fred's got slacks. Really quite sharp, but they're a little tight to But Robert Johnson's association with this myth is perhaps the most well-known within both uh, rock and blues circles. Um, in fact, people who, who knew him personally, you know, his contemporaries, uh, even commented on how he seemed to become a guitar prodigy practically overnight. His his whole life story is smothered in lore and mystery. Um, we don't even have a birth certificate for him. 
1938, Johnson died at the auspicious age of 27 from drinking poisoned whiskey, which, of course, has only added to his mythos. His career lasted a mere six years, and he only did two recording sessions that we know of. Um, but Britannica's entry on Johnson points out that, quote, despite the limited number of his recordings, Johnson had a major impact on other musicians, including Muddy Waters, Elmore James, Eric Clapton, and the Rolling Stones, end quote. This entry also points out that he had only one moderate hit in his lifetime. The New York Times actually did a belated obituary on him in 2019 entitled Overlooked No More, Robert Johnson, Bluesman Whose Life Was a Riddle. And it has the tagline that reads, Robert Johnson gained little notice in his life, but his songs, quoted by the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, and Led Zeppelin, helped ignite rock and roll. By the time Johnson's music came on the scene, blues was already a fully-fledged musical genre. Uh, In fact, it had been so for at least 50 years. In fact, uh, let's pause in our story of Robert Johnson and look at the birth of the blues. Now, if we revisit that musical family line that I mentioned last episode... We would see the progenitors of the blues are field haulers, spirituals, and work songs. When the American Civil War ended and the Emancipation Proclamation ostensibly freed the slaves, many African Americans found they had traded one form of bondage for another. A large percentage of them became sharecroppers, while others found other forms of heavy, back-breaking manual labor, like building railroads and such. Um, I want to share a rather lengthy quote from the University of Pittsburgh's Voices Across Time series. Quote, Field haulers undoubtedly have a long history among African Americans, but they first began to be noticed by others during and after the Civil War, when blacks began farming their own land and working as sharecroppers. Field haulers were a practical way of communicating over long distances in competition with other noises. Laborers working on individual tasks almost always sang haulers solo, so they differ from work songs that were sung by a group to keep time to rhythmic work like rowing or hammering. Field haulers were predecessors of the blues. Solo performance and descending tones after a long, tiring day in the field led naturally into the first blues songs that originated in this era. Yodeling is similar to hollering. It originated in Switzerland to communicate through the Alps and was used later in the southern Appalachians in America. Cowboys yodeled to compete with the noise of wind and cattle across distances on the prairies. End quote. We're actually going to revisit yodeling when we go up the country and western side of Rock's family tree. But for now, we're going to focus on field hollering. I'm going to play a sample of a field holler. Now, that quote I read a minute ago also mentioned work songs, which were often used by groups of workers to stay in rhythm with one another. I'm going to play a few clips of some work songs that demonstrate how they almost acted as a sort of proto-blues in a way, combining field haulers with the vocal inflections of spirituals, but they're not quite the blues yet. So here's a tie-tamping chant from some old field recordings made in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in Texas. And here's a track laying holler from that same collection of field recordings. All right, boy, that's all right. Now move on down again. Find out. All right. Go away. 
And now here's a song from Alan Lomax's Sounds of the South collection. The song is 18 Hammers by Johnny Lee Moore and 12 Mississippi Penitentiary Convicts. Well, 18 hammers standing. So right away you can hear call and response happening. And then, of course, the rhythm of the hammers. It helps them work in rhythm. It helps pass the time, gives you energy, right? If you're working to music. But this is the roots of the blues right here. Now, for those of you who are fans of the 90s band Vast, you'll, you may have noticed that this was the song sampled in their song, Dirty Hole. So right there, you can hear it in the background. All right, and now one last example of a work song displays the practice I mentioned before about using coded language in music. This clip comes from a song called Possum Was an Evil Thing. Possum was an evil thing, he rambled in the dark. He didn't know what the trouble was, he had a robot. Now you may be wondering why somebody is singing about a possum and why is the possum evil? Um, so Possum in this and many other songs of the period, it was actually referring to the overseer. So slavery may have ended in name, but it hadn't really ended in practice. And singing about the evil Possum was a way to essentially trash talk their boss while he was standing right in front of them. <laughs> we're done listening to work songs, but we're going to stay on the topic of work songs a little bit longer before we move on in our story. Now, a popular song many of us grew up with that is a... Uh, whitewashed nursery rhyme-esque version of work songs is I've been working on the railroad. Now we generally think of this as an innocent sort of fun little song to teach children but when you learn a little bit more about its history it's it's kind of like that moment when um, you know any of us Gen Xers you know grew up and realized how unwoke and un-PC most movies uh, were that we grew up with in the 80s. Um, you know, I mean, 16 Candles Alone. Welcome to Watch Mojo. And today we're counting down our picks for the top 10 children's songs that are secretly racist. The song I've Been Working on the Railroad first appeared in 1894 in an old Princeton songbook. Now, the original version has the verses most of us are familiar with, right? I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the railroad just to pass the time away, blah, blah, blah. You know the words. But there's a version in the original that is designed to mimic the African-American work song. The song talks about working on the railroad, going into the kitchen with Dinah, and strumming on the banjo. But it turns out that the words were originally meant to mimic the dialect of enslaved people. And the person in the kitchen with Dinah was doing something very adult. It gets even darker when you learn that the name Dinah used to be a way to refer to enslaved women. This redacted verse starts off with a little intro that the verse that the other verses don't have. I'm going to read the lyrics uh, slightly exaggerating the phonetic spellings of the words so that you can visualize how they're spelled. So in the intro, it starts off with a soloist who sings, I once did know a girl named Grace. And then a quartet sings. I'm Wilkin on D. Levy. Uh, the original name of the song was Levy Song before the title was changed to I've Been Working on the Railroad. Uh, then the soloist again sings, She done brung me to dis sad disgrace. And then the quartet sings, Oh, Wilkin on D. Levy. And then the verse continues with these lyrics. 
I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. I've been working on the ra- railroad to pass the time away. Doin' ya hear the whistle blowin' riz up so early in the moan. Don't ya hear the captain shouting? Dinah blow your horn. Uh, there are a few things to point out in this verse. Um, first of all, notice how even in 1894, one of the ways the songwriter sought to capture black culture in the music was to incorporate some call and response in that intro, right, with the soloist and the quartet. The other thing to notice is the use of minstrel dialect in that verse. The minstrel dialect comes from something called the minstrel show. The minstrel show, which was also called minstrelsy, is sometimes referred to as the first uniquely American form of theater. It was a form of racist theatrical entertainment that developed in the early 19th century. Now, each show consisted of comic skits, variety acts, um, dancing, music performances uh, that depicted people specifically of African descent. However, the performers in these shows were uh, predominantly white. So the way they portrayed African-Americans was, you guessed it, through the use of blackface. Now, there were also some African-American performers and black-only minstrel groups that formed and toured. But on the whole, minstrel shows characterized black people as dim-witted, lazy, buffoonish, superstitious, and happy-go-lucky. Um, now, many of the tunes from minstrel shows would continue on as incarnations of country tunes called hillbilly music. And more importantly for our current discussion, blues tunes called race music. Blues music has an interesting history with minstrel shows. The The form of blues that would come out of minstrel shows was generally more of a vaudeville style of blues. Um, but aside from minstrel shows, however, in those early years, the different types of blues were usually designated by their region. So Delta blues was the style of blues that came out of the Mississippi Delta. Uh, which was a style of blues that Robert Johnson played. There was also New Orleans blues, which would incorporate Dixieland music. Uh, and eventually, as a result of the Great Migration during the first half of the 20th century, you would see Delta blues performed with an urban style in what would come to be known as Chicago blues. Now, the name of today's episode uh, actually comes from a line in the 1987 film Adventures in Babysitting, which takes place in Chicago. There's a moment when the babysitter, played by a very young Elizabeth Shue, is leading the kids she's babysitting away from some bad guys who are trying to capture them, and she ends up leading them into a blues club where she intends to just you know pass through real quick. However, her progress is stopped by real-life blues guitarist Albert Collins, who tells her, Nobody leave this place without singing the blues. At first, she's scared, of course, and she starts her song rather lamely by introducing herself and the kids she's babysitting. But then she starts singing about all the troubles they'd faced that night. The style of blues that they're performing in that scene is Chicago blues, actually. If you watch the movie, you'll also notice that as she's singing about her terrible trials and all and everything that's happened to them, um, that's when she starts smiling. Now, obviously, this is a fictional portrayal of the blues, but it, it captured one of the traditional roles of the music. It was a release valve for difficult lives. Now, the blues would be performed all over the place, but early on you would see the creation of blues nightclubs and dance halls called juke joints. And yes, that's where the word jukebox comes from. And this would help spread the blues as an underground sensation, though the music still remained almost exclusively within the black community. That is until 1903, when a college-educated black man named W.C. Handy 
had his first encounter with the blues. It was on a train platform in Tutwiler, Mississippi. He sat down on the bench to wait for the train, and seated next to him was a, quote, lean, loose-jointed Negro vagrant uh, who was playing blues guitar using a knife as a guitar slide. Handy, who was the leader of a color band, was transfixed by the music. A little while later, he heard an African-American string band playing the blues in another town and saw people throwing coins at the feet of the musicians, which showed him there was a market for this type of music. Now, having a formal education in music, Handy used it to translate the blues into what would become, for him, a music publishing empire. I'll I'll play a clip of Muscle Shoals Blues by W.C. Handy. Notice the heavy syncopation in there. Hope you remember that word, syncopation. Now, I actually still remember as a kid playing simplified versions of W.C. Handy songs on the piano as part of my piano lessons. Those are some of my favorite songs to play, actually. Um, On an unrelated note, my least favorite song to play on piano was Susie Snowflake. And my piano teacher would assign that song to me every year at Christmas. It drove me nuts. Anyway, uh, W.C. Handy would be the instrument, no pun intended, that would bring blues into the mainstream. White audiences would have their first exposure to a type of music that existed in black communities for decades due to Handy's compositions and arrangements. Okay, so this is where we'll bring minstrel shows back into our narrative. Despite being horribly racist and cringy, uh, they would come to feature blues music quite heavily, providing a literal showcase of blues music as they toured the countryside, as well as a steady gig for blues musicians. This was kind of a big deal for blues musicians. The recording industry was still in its infancy. You know, sheet music reigned supreme. Um, So W.C. Handy, you know, he had that fancy college education that allowed him to notate the music and sell it as sheet music. He and his band certainly made decent money performing his music, but the real money was in music publishing. And since most blues musicians only knew how to play with no clue how to read or notate music, this also meant most blues musicians were confined to make a living in those aforementioned juke joints or in these minstrel shows. Uh, This would start to change in 1920 when Perry Bradford, who is actually a competitor of W.C. Handy, um, he recorded Crazy Blues with Mamie Smith singing. This would help launch what were called race records, is essentially black music for black audiences. Now the blues were available not just in live performances or to the elite who could afford, you know, music lessons to to play, you know, the sheet music printed by W.C. Handy, but it really took its first step in truly becoming a music for the masses. Too many artists rely on platforms for their success, but it's time to take back control of your career. We gotta take the power back. This podcast never would have happened if it hadn't been for Craftsman Creative. First, I read the book, then I listened to the podcast, then I reached out and received super helpful coaching from Darren, who is my new Yoda for monetizing my creative pursuits. And now I'm taking their courses to help build my creative business. Craftsman Creative is a powerful resource to help artists like you build bespoke creative businesses. They have courses, coaching, and community all ready to help you grow, as well as a weekly newsletter, which you can get for free at craftsmancreative.co. That's craftsman, M-A-N, creative.co. And now back to the show. Now, one of the effects of the fledgling recording industry would have on the blues would be the creation of hokum blues. 
Um, Pre-World War I, Hokum referred to a, just a performance practice within minstrel shows. I'm actually going to give props to Wikipedia here, uh, which has a pretty good entry on Hokum and quote from it. Quote, in a general sense, Hokum was a style of comedic farce spoken, sung, and spoofed while masked in both risque innuendo and tomfoolery. It is one of the many legacies and techniques of the 19th century blackface minstrelsy. Like so many other elements of the minstrel show, stereotypes of racial, ethnic, and sexual fools were the stock and trade of Hokum. Hokum was stagecraft, gags, and routines for embracing farce. W.C. Handy, himself a veteran of minstrel troupe, remarked that our Hokum hooked him, meaning that the low comedy snared an audience that stuck around to hear the music. Hokum was a component of all-around performing entertainment that seamlessly mixed monologues, dialogues, dances, music, and humor, end quote. Now, after World War I, Hokum would go from simply being a sort of performance practice in minstrel shows and split off into its own musical genre known as Hokum Blues. Now, quoting from that Wikipedia entry again, quote, Hokum Blues lyrics specifically poked fun at all manner of sexual practices, preferences, and eroticized domestic arrangements. Compositions such as Banana in Your Fruit Basket, written by Bo Carter of the Mississippi Sheiks, used thinly veiled allusions, which typically employed food and animals as metaphors in a lusty manner worthy of Chaucer. The hilariously sexy lyric content usually steered clear of subtlety. Um, well, end quote. Now, we're actually going to stop this story thread here and revisit Hokum Blues later when we discuss lyrics spelled l-e-e-r-i-c-s that'll be in a later episode but for now just remember this element of the blues that makes heavy use of double entendre Uh, now as the blues were becoming you know a huge presence in the recording industry there was a scramble by record execs to find new sounds and new artists within the blues uh, with the creation of hokum blues being one of the results of that scramble in 1926, blues recordings got into a new market with the discovery of a Texas street performer named Blind Lemon Jefferson. Now, up to this point, the type of blues that had been popularized was more akin to early jazz, ragtime, and Dixieland. The sort of blues that you think of when you picture some tired old guy sitting on his porch with a guitar singing about his troubles, that had remained in the underground all this time and would only come to light here in the mid-1920s. Uh, I actually like the way Chuck D put it in the documentary Woke Up This Morning. Um, In describing how this blues contrasted with the kind popularized by Perry Bradford and Mamie Smith, he said, it was a different kind of blues. It's one-on-one. A person is just kind of hollering at the moon. The performer is expressing his or her soul to the universe. End quote. I think it's one of the best descriptions of the blues I've ever heard. The Mississippi Delta was inhabited only because of the levees built throughout the 1800s. Before that, it was completely flooded, but the soil was super fertile. So, you know, enter the Army Corps of Engineers and levee camps begin to spring up all throughout the region. Cotton farms enter the picture and laborers are brought into the region to work the fields and the machines. Now, the most famous of these Dockery Farms would be the birthplace of Delta Blues. These cotton farms were veritable towns And quite often you'd have long lines of workers waiting to get paid and blues performers would set up nearby and just play their music. Um, One of these guys was a guy named Charlie Patton, a.k.a. the father of the Delta Blues. Uh, Charlie Patton was 
a rock star before there were any rock stars. <laughs> he would put on a show. He would engage with the audience, clown around. He would play the guitar while holding it behind his back. He was Proto Hendrix. There were essentially two types of people going out and recording blues music. Uh, those who were looking for the new sound that could be sold and those looking to preserve the sound that already existed, i.e. folklorists. Uh, one of these folklorists I mentioned earlier, Alan Lomax, Lomax would go into these all-black penitentiaries and record the prisoners singing their work songs. And one of these prisoners who recorded was a guy named Huddy Ledbetter, otherwise known as Leadbelly. Um, now, when Leadbelly got out of jail, he kind of skyrocketed to fame, um, you know, despite no shortage of bad press that tried to play up his prison record as a means of stinting his success. But here's a sample of one of his songs. Black girl, black girl, don't lie to me. Tell me where did you sleep last night? In the pines. Now, you Nirvana fans who didn't perk up at the mention of Lead Belly have probably perked up by now after hearing his music. My girl. Although you'll notice that Kurt Cobain changed the lyrics to My Girl instead of Black Girl. I still remember watching Nirvana's Unplugged performance and when Kurt Cobain mentioned that um, you know it was a Lead Belly song he had played uh, I remember thinking hmm Lead Belly I've never heard of that band uh, but like so many other teens of my generation I think my introduction to this particular blues artist came thanks to Kurt Cobain now the other type of person recording Delta Blues in the 1930s that I mentioned earlier the type looking for the new sound brings our story to a furniture store in Jackson, Mississippi, owned by a white guy named H.C. Spear. This furniture store also functioned as a venue for blues artists to be recorded and discovered, which is it's kind of funny, you know, like, hey, let's go buy a couch, and while we're there, we'll cut a hot new record. Um, but for many blues artists, this was their way out. And in 1936, a 25-year-old blues musician entered Spear's furniture store for this very purpose. This brings our story back to Robert Johnson. Now, the thing that made Robert Johnson unique to other blues artists before him is, um, as Elijah Wald put it in Woke Up This Morning, quote, he's the first person we have from the blues world who had heard all the blues records. And as a result, he's the first person who doesn't just play a style from his place. He's like already this compendium of the greatest blues styles of the 20s and early 30s, and he's putting it all together end quote. Uh, Johnson also didn't just rehash old tunes with his own style, but also composed original songs, which actually set him apart from a lot of his contemporaries. Now, like it, you know, we kind of saw before, during his lifetime, uh, Johnson would remain somewhat obscure and almost completely unknown. Uh, in fact, it wouldn't be until the 1960s that he would then be acclaimed as the king of the Delta Blues singers. And actually, we're going to stop our exploration of the blues backstory there. The next step in the blues journey will be boogie-woogie and rhythm and blues. But before we dive into that, we need to go back in time and talk about the other side of Rock's family tree, the country and western side. Until then, you can access a transcript of this episode on my website, deeptrackspodcast.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter and gain access to the show notes, more resources for any rabbit holes you'd like to go down in your own research as well as some fun merchandise 
design by yours truly. 